Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Nikki Segnet, and my new book is called Lateral Cooking, One Dish Leads to Another. And here's the follow-up to your hugely successful 2010 book, The Flavor Thesaurus. This is a cookbook full of open-ended recipes, a dense, and that's a bit of an understatement, 610-page cookbook. Lateral cooking is organized into 77 starting point recipes divided into 12 chapters, reducing the variety of world cuisine down to its bare essentials. I can't stress how unique this cookbook is. Can you talk a little bit about how one dish leads to another? The book was originally conceived as uh, a book about how to flavor lots and lots of different kitchen classics. So that was a very common sense follow-up to The Flavor Thesaurus. It would just be, you know, his how to flavor ice cream or risotto or gnocchi in countless ways. It would be a kind of interesting directory for anybody who just wanted to, you know, maybe be a bit more ingredient-led in their cooking. But in the years that I was uh, researching it and going through, I mean, thousands and thousands of recipes, I started to take notice of all the, if you like, the patterns of how different recipes that we, you know, things that we might have thought of being very different to each other actually were very similar. And what happened was, I I suppose I ended up deconstructing loads and loads of dishes from all over the world. I mean, just, I I guess there are thousands in the book Uh, and putting them into family groups. It's like a family tree of recipes. And what you get when you, you know, when you tuck into the reading of it is that you'll see how lots and lots and lots of things are connected. And not only is that quite interesting if you like reading about food, but if you like cooking and, um, you know, you've always thought that maybe something was out of your confidence zone, when you see if it's quite close to something that you've made dozens of times before you can start to feel like oh yes I can do that it's 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 close to something that I can make so why wouldn't I have you know give it a go my overriding mission as I got late into writing the book was to also create a book that people could read if they wanted to learn to cook without using recipes and so the whole book is written in with that in mind with that aim of people who want to become intuitive who can just tug down a bowl from the shelf and get going on something because they know what to do. In the early stages of lateral cooking, you drew up a list of the best things you had ever eaten. What were some of the items that were on that list? So, yeah, I mean, so many of the things that are on that list are um, de- a, a broth and stock based. So they were uh, butternut squash risotto, which I ate in a restaurant in London, um, a kind of sausagey pasta that I ate when I was on a business trip to um, north of Italy, um, a fantastic cockavan that I once made um, and, in fact, ended up putting in sandwiches. And that is a meal that my husband maintains is the best thing he's ever eaten, cockavan sandwiches, if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> things like a chicken, I think I call it polo con arroz, just chicken with rice, which I ate in a beach in the south of Spain that was just made with the darkest chicken stock I have ever, ever seen. That wonderful red braised uh, Chinese pork. I just it kind of came to me that so many of the really, really wonderful, deep, memorable things that I've eaten in my life are to do with starting with a good stock pot. You have some obscure or counterintuitive suggestions. Talk about one example with ice cream. Yeah, I mean, it's really funny. I think when you think of 
um, writing a book like this and you're thinking about flavoring different classics, ice cream is one of the things that has been really pushed to the limit everywhere, don't you think? I mean, you just, I don't know if there's any flavor that you haven't heard of. Yeah. So when I came, I mean, I chose mainly 10 different examples of a lot of um, of the classics and the olive oil one I chose to include because I ate it in a, <laughs> I ate it in a Spanish restaurant after having an argument with my husband, which I think I recount in the book because the book has quite a few stories in it. It's quite a <laughs> chatty um, book. I mean, but you all you have to do to make an olive oil ice cream is to make a typical ice cream base and then whisk some good olive oil in it i think um there's a description of it in the book that says something like it was the whole thing because it's so fruity and grassy it tastes like a frozen picnic it's absolutely fantastic but you do have to choose a really good olive oil before you do that so you just taste it on a spoon and if you think oil before you think olive then you have to choose another olive oil So yeah, oftentimes I find cookbooks to be so serious. And I love that you brought humor into this process and your stories. (laughs) It's the only way I know to be really. Um, I I have this, uh, I have a slightly privileged position as a writer of cookbooks. And this was the case for the Flavor of the Saurus as well, which is um, I'm just an amateur cook. Um, in fact, I'm a, I'm a very keen amateur cook and I've cooked a lot of things and I've tested all the recipes, but I, you know, I'm not a chef. I'm not somebody who can preach on high or feels the need to take a, a very you know serious authoritative position. I, I do think as, you know, I'm talking to somebody who's in my kitchen, who likes cooking like I do, who considers it a really good fun thing to do. There's never anything in my book that's trying to cajole people into making things or persuade them that, oh, come on, you can do this. It's just, I know that the people that I'm writing for, this is quite, you know, this is a, this is a book for for keenies. This is a book for cooking geeks and people who just, who think about cooking all day. So I can, you know, I can talk to them about irritating incidents with cooking equipment or like, you know, where to get certain ingredients and stuff with a chatty flourish, I think. Using bread as an example, talk a bit about committing a formula to memory as opposed to trying to remember 10 recipes. This goes for quite a few of the chapters in the book, but bread is one of the smoothest as far as this is concerned. Because when I putting all the recipes together in continuum so they're linked up Uh, what I've tried to do is not only keep the quantities the same wherever possible but also to keep the language that's used to write the methods the same so that things become super familiar rather than it feeling like doing something different every time so with the bread continuum the first starting point on that um on that line is uh, unleavened flatbread which is just as simple as adding uh, enough water to flour and a bit of salt in order to make a dough, uh, and that's very that's a very basic thing. But the flavors and variations in that um, section are you know take you into so many interesting different places. So actually, it's the same thing to do if you want to make matzo crackers or if you want to make Scottish oat cakes. If you mix up flour and grated coconut, you can make a Sri Lankan flatbread called polrotti. Or if you make up, um, if you put some chickpea flour and actually some chopped up spinach and nigella seeds in, you can make mizi roti, which is a, a popular bread in Rajasthan. You can even make buckwheat Japanese noodles with the same dough. Um, okay, so we start, but we start with two cups of flour and about uh, two thirds of a cup of water and. Uh, from there, you can make so many different things. And that's before you even kind of open the 
uh, cupboard up and start looking at all the different flowers that you've collected over the year because you've been buying all these kind of wonderful and interesting different flowers from around the world. And then as you progress along the bread continuum, the next thing we go to is biscuits and um, Irish soda bread and cobbler. And they're all made with the same formula. But again, I use the same two cups of flour and about two thirds of a cup of water. So it stays consistent. And in fact, it stays consistent all the way through bread. So the next thing we have is leavened bread. So using yeast instead of using a chemical leavener. And then you have buns where you use milk instead of water and maybe a little bit of egg. So you're enriching the dough. But in fact, when you look at the proportions of those things, you're still using the same amount of liquid to flour. It's just that you're using it in beaten egg rather than water and milk in some places. And then the same with brioche. And then finally, that continuum ends up with um, barbas and savarins. And that is where you take that dough and you use uh, some milk on top of um, water and you end up with this uh, with a batter instead of a dough. But when you see the, all the different formulas written next to each other, they're so similar that you, all you have to do is just learn the little tweak that makes one thing another. So it's my contention that anybody can learn to make, you know, pretty much every bread from around the world in, you know, in a week or less. God, that's so clever. It's so, it's so interesting. I just thought it has revolutionized my cooking because when it comes to standards like that, when it comes to things that are like custards or breads or cakes and cookies, just being able to say, right, I'm going to, oh, I want to make that, so I'm going to get started and don't have to consult anything. I just, I now, I cook like somebody who knows how to cook, whereas previously I really was a recipe robot. Even as I was writing The Flavor Thesaurus, I was someone who learned to cook by following recipes and cook like someone who learned to cook following recipes because I didn't have any flexibility in me. I didn't, didn't have any um, confidence in my intuition and it hadn't occurred to me that actually you can learn to have intuition. It sounds, you know, of course it sounds ir ironic, but that's exactly what you do if you're a musician. You learn how to play the notes and then you can improvise. And that really is, that's what got me so excited about writing Natural Cooking. It took eight years, which is a phenomenal amount of time to work on one project very deeply every day. But it, ne it was never boring because it's just such a fascinating thing to find all these 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 amazing little um, connections between all these things that you want to eat or you want to try. I don't know anyone who doesn't love a homey chicken or vegetable stock, so I would love to drill down on your brown chicken stock recipe that's on page 208. I made it over the weekend, and I have so many questions. Okay. <laughs> First off, what's the yeah. difference between stock, broth, and consomme? I don't know if there's a really definitive difference between a stock and a broth. But I think there's a very useful one that comes up quite often and it helped me uh, decide how I was going to um, position them in the book. And that is with stock, you throw the ingredients that you're using to flavor the water away and with broth, you eat them. So that's unclear. With consomme, of course, you're doing that incredibly magical thing where you take the stock or broth. It's probably more likely to be a broth, but it could be a stock. Uh, and then you clarify it and make sure it's flavorful enough in order to um, serve it as a soup on its own. I mean, sometimes with consommes, they're layered with, you, you'll make a stock and then you'll actually add some more flavors to it. And then you might add some something else because you're aiming for something that is 
if you like, uh, perfect in itself. You're not going to be serving it with anything else. Just that um, zinging clear soup. So next to the ingredients are tiny letters that correspond <laughs> to leeways. Tell us about leeways. This came up as I was coming up with all these different flavor variations of recipes. Because I was collecting dozens of recipes for each of the starting points, I also started to note down, well, what happens if I want to make this cake and I don't have that many eggs or I've only got baking soda and not baking powder? Well, those kind of things came up. And so what I've done for each of the 77 start points is put little um, notes by uh, all the ingredients or some of the um some of the methods as well, just saying, look, if you if you don't have us, you can do this. This is how to make a, a ersatz buttermilk if you don't have any buttermilk. This is a standard amount of sugar, but it's absolutely fine to cut it down to either, you know, to a, a certain level or whatever you want. So it's full of um, practical tweaks as well, if you like. I mean, I'm sure if you're a professional chef, you never run out of anything. But of course, for most of us home cooks, we don't necessarily have a perfectly stocked larder. So it's useful to know how to change things up if you, you know, if you're short of something or if you have certain dietary requirements. I try and talk about where the gluten is important and where it, where it doesn't matter, that kind of thing. The stock recipe starts off with browning the chicken pieces. Why brown? Because it's a brown chicken stock, we're going to brown them. So we're going to create more flavor. It's just as as simple as that. So lots of people on some dishes, like a risotto, sometimes will call call for a a white chicken stock where you just don't bother with browning at all. But this is just about um, adding depth of flavor. And this calls for one onion, but we shouldn't peel it. Why uh, leave the peel on? Again, it's it's flavor and color. So, you know, I mean, I, I think one of the great things about making a stock and, and getting used to making stock is that you realize that, you you know, this is not like making, you know, a, a, a casserole or, a, you know, a star dish. It is it's about just kind of getting it in and getting it going. So, and the, the onion, you know, if you've ever made a, a, just an onion stock or a vegetable stock, you know, the onion peel adds a kind of a, a nice kind of brownie appealing you know, flavorful looking color. Then we can add tomato paste, wine, or vermouth. What does this bring to the flavor profile? Tomato puree, you're certainly going to get some sharpness uh, and some umami in there. With the wine and vermouth, vermouth in particular, very aromatic. So if if you're making something um, kind of Frenchy, uh, chicken, maybe a uh, a blancat, um, if you know that dish, then something like vermouth is going to add some herbal flavors, some like very light floral flavors, a touch of bitterness in those instances. And you can you can leave them out if you don't know what you're actually going to be doing with your chicken stock. If you're just making it maybe for a chicken noodle soup, or you don't know kind of quite what you're going to do with it yet, you might leave it plain. But I think if you're taking it a certain direction, you might want to add some of those kind of different taste profiles. So why should we start off with cold water as opposed to hot? Down to the scientific side of things, if you put cold water in and you bring it very slowly up to the um, up to a simmer and then don't let it boil, just keep it at a very slow simmer where there's just one bubble breaking every now and again, then you get that beautiful clarity that you see sometimes in chicken stock. For most of us, when we're making chicken stock, if we're using it for risotto, you're using it for uh, you know a soup, or you know, chicken noodle soup, or, or just distilling it down to have a you know to use it on pastas, it really won't matter because you're not going to see that. It's really if, only if you've got uh, if you've got something in mind where that clarity is going to be particularly beautiful. So talk a little bit about the scum that rises to the surface. <laughs> 
So, uh, well, this is, uh, I mean, this is just the impurities coming off the chicken and the bones. So once your job is to skim and skim and skim and um, skim again if, and skim again. But if you're fussy, I mean, again, you don't have, it's not essential to do that. It's not going to cause any problems with your stock for most of the things that you use it. But if you take the, um, if you skim it, if you, if you're to sort of be more, along the lines of uh, La Russe and you skim it, then you can then add a little bit of cold liquid, maybe a bit of cold water to the um, stock, and that will actually create a bit more of the impurities, help them come to the top, and then you can skim them off and skim it off. So if you're making a consomme, you're going to go through those kind of, if you like, they're very sort of professional French kitchen kind of um, steps, if you want to do that. And if you're making like a few steps along the continuum where you've got velouté, then you might, um, you, again, you might do that in order to make the sauce uh, a little bit more refined. It was interesting to see that there's an option to simmer uncovered, which we're all used to doing. But you have another option where you can pop it in the oven at 200 degrees for three to four hours. So does that have the same outcome as simmering? Well, it, I mean, it will have a fairly similar outcome. You get a much more beautiful stock. I mean, in terms of it's the uncloudiness, that is one way if you do want something to look sort of crystally clear, if you put it in the oven, just because I suppose you managed to achieve that low heat. You'll still, of course, then end up with a big uh, stock pot full of heat and you probably need to reduce it because because you've managed to keep that heat quite low, then you're not going to reduce it as much as you would do necessarily on the hob, unless you're using a diffuser, which I don't think most people do. If it's the choice, I would always put it in the oven instead because it just comes, it, you know, it comes out just looking so glorious. I liked it because you can walk away from it. You don't have to cover. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same with bread. I feel like this about bread that I now know because I know so much about how to make bread, uh, you know, how simple it can be. I know when I've got the 10 minutes to throw it together, get that dough going and let it do its thing, like let it do its um, rise, maybe in the fridge very slowly so that you don't have to be there for when it's kind of taken its hour and a half or two hours to get to twice its size. If you put it in the fridge to, to do that, then you can come back to it in six or seven hours and then continue. I, I try and keep those things included in the book because, uh, you know, it's great. I love cooking, but I also have to fit it into a real life. Describe clarifying stock. What does that entail and why would we do it? That's a good question. Why would you do it? Well, Why? you do it. <laughs> Are you getting the impression? I'm actually quite a, a slutty stock maker. I, I <laughs> very rarely need like beautiful, clear stock. So I'm always, you know, I'm the person who makes the roast chicken on Sunday and then I make my stock the next day just with one carcass and, uh, you know, and then have chicken noodle soup the next day. It doesn't need to be really beautiful. But if you want to clarify your stock or you want to scare your children because it looks so kind of repulsive, actually, um, you can whisk up some egg whites and then stir them into the stock. And what happens is they congeal and they uh, rise to the surface, bringing with them all the little bits and bobs that have been floating around the stock. So they make a, a raft that floats on the top and then you should be able to lift it off. And then underneath you have a beautiful, clear stock. There's a lot of ways of trying to make your stock clear when I'm saying you don't really need it. You probably <laughs> don't need to do it. But um, 
there is a downside as well with doing that. So you can, um, unfortunately, you can take a bit of the flavor off the stock. If you do that clarification thing, you lift off uh, some certain amount of flavor with the egg. So if you're a fussy French chef, what you might do is you might mix that egg white with some of whatever the flavor of your stock is. So you might use some minced chicken uh, with the egg white. And then so that's actually going to cook into the stock and replace some of the flavor that's going to disappear and just enrich it a bit further, which is always, you know, a, a really rich stock is a wonderful thing. What's great about this cookbook is you've thought about all of these steps to put into making stock that I have never thought about. It's options. It's options along the way. I mean, the thing is, is you see that the method for all the starting points is written bigger. And then underneath there's a little aside. Sometimes it will say you're doing this because of this, or, you know, the reason that you're doing this, or you don't have to do this. So you kind of, you as you, as you use the book a bit more often, you know, which, you know, you don't need to necessarily read the little notes because they're just telling you, uh, they're a kind of a, an aside. Well, if you love to read cookbooks, you're going to want this cookbook because it's a really great read too. Well, I mean, thank you. The thing is, is I say, you know, I'm not a professional chef. I'm somebody who loves to cook, but I write these books because I like to write. When I decided that I wanted to write the flavor of the saurus and give it a go. It was because I love MFK Fisher and I love um, Elizabeth David and I like Nigella Lawson's How to Eat. And I like those books that you can sit down and read and that kind of give you a bit of a an opening onto the context of that, you know, of the food. Where did you eat it? Where did you try it? Um, a little story around it. Uh, you know, sometimes I might do something that you don't normally do in cookbooks, which is to say, I'm not crazy about this. I, you know, I don't particularly like it, but, um, so it's very subjective. It's very chatty. Um, yes, I don't hold back on when I think something is funny. I work hard to, describe things. So certainly that was the thing when I wrote The Flavor of the Saurus is I set myself the task of never saying it's mysterious or, you know, it's um, hard to put your finger on or anything like that. I had to get in the ring and describe what something tastes like. And so the same as with lateral cooking. I don't, you know, it's not just sketchily um, thrown off. It's a very, it's a very written book. There's a lot of consideration gone into what's being said. And overall, the idea that if people are going to read this much about food and you want to pick up all this interesting stuff, it needs to be entertaining in order for people to sit there with it on their lap and you know, and get stuck in. It's got to, it's got to be rewarding. Now to my segment called my favorite cookbook. So aside from this cookbook, what is your favorite cookbook and why? Well, you know, I, I have, I'm serial monogamous when it comes, when it comes to favorite cookbooks. Um, Am I allowed to choose a, a piece of writing that, that would definitely be my overall ever ever favorite? And that is uh, from MFK Fisher. I think it's from The Art of Eating, and it's called I Was Really Very Hungry. It was what was in my head when I was writing The Flavor of the Source as something that would be a beacon to what I would like to achieve. And it's a, it's a piece about her going to a restaurant in France where she's on her own. She's in Burgundy. It sounds like she's been out for a a long walk and then she goes to this rather fancy restaurant at lunchtime and she's the only person in there and she's having a meal but she's 
constantly being talked to by the waitress who is just a food fanatic and there's this chef in the kitchen who I think is called Paul and she just keeps kind of the waitress keeps coming in and saying oh he's got this and he made this and it's just it's just the most wonderful piece because it's just it's it's very very appetizing the food sounds fantastic but it's also a really great character study what was great about it was that she takes us into this you know, this passion she has for food and this scenario where she's really enjoying uh, this incredible meal. But she really sets the table for you. You're there. Uh, And I just, uh, that is, I would say, by far my favorite piece of food writing. As far as food books, cookbooks are concerned, well, you know, it's terrible, isn't it? But I just end up with such a flirtation for a while with one and then another. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Okay, so I believe I have a website called uh, nikisegnut.com. My name is N-I-K-I-S-E-G-N-I-T. But the place that I use the most is Instagram. So I sometimes um, uh, Instagram things that I've been making, things that I've been doing. Uh, and that is just at Nikki Segnut. Thanks so much, Nikki, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.